The word conscience appears three times in 1 Corinthians 8. And in this last session, I'd like to focus on the way that Paul applies this issue in 1 Corinthians 9. So I'd like to begin right now by quoting 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And I'd encourage you to just listen and imagine what it would be like to be a member of the church at Corinth, hearing someone read Paul's letter and you receiving it as a word from the Lord. <clears throat> now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care, brothers, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, and thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if meat makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a field without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting any of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. 
if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. They, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So I run. So I run. Oh, help me if you, one of you know this. So I run. Yeah, do not run. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Okay, that's, that's just 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. In a passage uh, embedded, it's actually 8 to 10 is the unit, and it's in a letter with all these issues. But the reason I, I, did, I started off with that passage is we often cite individual verses in that section, and we forget the context. And the, the passage I want to be in the forefront tonight is Paul, when he's explaining that he's all things to all people, and, and how that's in the context of talking about the conscience. So, uh, I hope you have a handout with you. We're on the very last page of the handout. So, make your way there. If you don't have a handout, there are some in the very back. 
tonight we're going to answer this question. How should you relate to people in other cultures when your consciences disagree? So, some of you were here last night, and you saw that conscience issues can be complex, even in your own culture, even in your own family. So, can you imagine what happens when you cross cultures? I mean, if it's complex in our culture, what happens when you cross cultures? It's a road fraught with peril, and yet every year, church planters start churches on the other side of town, and churches send out missionaries in other countries, and they often give little to no understanding to how their own consciences work, let alone how the consciences of the people to whom they minister work, and often doesn't even cross their minds that, for example, standards of privacy and private property rights can be quite different in the new location. So this is a really uh, interesting story my friend J.D. Crowley tells when he was in Cambodia. So he, he's a missionary in Cambodia. He grew up in, well, he's in Hawaii and Japan and America. So he comes to Cambodia and he plants a, what's the type of, it's a mango tree. He plants a mango tree. And it takes three or four years for mangoes to start coming. And, and when they start finally coming, there are three mangoes on this tree. And he is so looking forward to eating those mangoes. And one day, a, a concrete worker comes to help him with the task. And while he's working in his, in his uh, yard, he, uh, he goes over to the mango tree and, and plucks all three mangoes and eats them before they're even fully ripe. And J.D., was appalled that he stole his fruit. That, that was his fruit. He was looking for, he didn't even ask, he just ate it. Now, from this man's perspective, knowing that J.D. was frustrated by that, J.D. was sinning by being stingy with his food. Can you see what the problem's here? So, what's, what's going on? So, J.D. comes from the culture where you don't take fruit off of someone else's tree ever without their permission, or if you do, that's stealing. But it works differently uh, in Cambodia. So in Cambodia, uh, if you are walking through someone's field or yard, not if you jump over their fence, but if you're just walking through their yard and you pluck fruit, that's totally legit. No problem. In fact, did you know it was like that in the Bible times? Yeah, read your Old Testament. <laughs> so uh, remember Jesus walking through the fields? Taking some, uh, threshing the wheat there. and you know, that, was, that was how it's been in many cultures, but in our culture, we don't do it that way. But that's the culture in Cambodia. And J.D. had to add that category for when he's in Cambodia. So later on, he was walking through someone else's field. His buddy picked some fruit, handed it to him, and he ate it with a clear conscience. All right? So not just stealing, but the other one was trespassing. You can walk through people's fields in Cambodia, and that's okay. So these are, these are issues that J.D. had to add to his conscience. And you can see on your handout, the first question there is, do they even have a conscience? That's what his question was when this, this guy plucked his fruit. Does he even have a conscience? Well, the missionary's conscience, as you can see in the, the triangles, says you don't prick fruit that belongs to others. But in the local conscience, it was don't be stingy with food. They both were thinking the other person was wrong because their consciences had different rules in them. And, and what happens is, 
uh, we can interact with other people in the same way where we each see each other as sinning because it's a conscience issue for us, but not for them. You tracking, tracking this? Okay. So next section here on your handout says an ally goes silent. See that? Ally goes silent. Here's where this gets interesting. So when you interact with someone from another culture and you try to show them their need for a Savior, show them that they're sinful, what often happens is when people from different cultures interact, the Christian looks at that, at that person in the other culture and sees the places where there's a sin in their conscience, but it's not a sin on their conscience, and they want to point those things out. And when you do that, the conscience of that other person isn't cooperating. So, I'll make this more clear as we go. So, here are, here are three dangers in evangelism in these instances. One danger is, we'll preach against sins that are not sins in any culture, but simply cultural accretions, baggage that we've carried to our new country from the West, or worse yet, from our Christian subculture. We want to tell them, don't you know, does not nature itself teach you that it's a sin to use certain instruments in worship? or that it's a sin to destroy forests with slash and burn agriculture, or that it's a sin to put your 10-year-old to work in the fields, or that it's a sin to be late for a church service, or whatever. We have these cultural conscience issues uh, that we've developed, and we go to another culture, and we want to impose that there, enforce that there. And then when we preach against those kinds of sins, the conscience of our hearers is silent. It's not convicting like it, it, should, it would be if it was a genuine sin. So with, what happens, though, is with enough persuasion and force of a Western personality, we can convince these puzzled people, these locals, that what we're talking about is really important, but it's not going to be the Holy Spirit convincing them of these issues. So the result, then, is another group of Christians with overburdened consciences. And an overburdened conscience is a conscience that's ripe for error. So, that's one danger. Here's the second of three dangers. There's a danger that we'll preach against what we in the West consider to be sins, but, with, but what those in the local culture do not, because we define the details of the sins differently, like with the picking the fruit, that issue. And third, there's a danger that we'll not be careful to value the, the virtues of local people's consciences. So, there's so many issues like this. I'm going to mention a few coming up. I'll just mention one. Many people in the world are appalled at how people in America treat their parents as they age. Nursing homes are just scandalous to them. You put them in a nursing home? Are you crazy? That is so disrespectful. Uh, just, that whole issue is a, a bigger deal in some cultures, and they think we are horrible there. Uh, there's a lot we can learn from other cultures on, on some things like this about how to value family. So I'll, I'll probably circle back to that one. So I would argue that because God created us in His image, we can expect that all cultures have at least something we can learn that's good from them, traditions we can affirm and learn from, and, and expect the opposite, some sins that are especially prevalent in those cultures. Okay? So next bullet point is the unexamined conscience of a missionary. The unexamined conscience of a missionary. Again, if two Christians in the West have such divergence at, uh, on these conscience issues, just imagine if you take a Western missionary and a Christian, or just a person, 
in the global south or in the east or in Asia somewhere. It's going to be crazy. So J.D. Crowley and I have learned so much from one of my professors at Trinity named Bob Priest, Robert Priest. Dr. Pastor Miller, did you have Robert? No, okay. Robert Priest, great guy. Um, I'm not aware of anyone who's thought more deeply about uh, conscience and culture and missions. So he's the professor of international studies and mission and anthropology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He grew up in Bolivia, and he later conducted a two-year uh, study of uh, anthropological field research among the Aguaruna of Peru, and he focused on traditional religion and conversion to Christianity. And he's written a couple articles on this that are fantastic, and I'm going to be drawing from them and just sharing some of the fruit of his incredible, insightful work. So he, he shared this insight that in an intercultural situation, each person tends to condemn the other morally for, for behavior about which the other person doesn't have a conscience. So here's what he says. Uh, a North American going to live with the Aguaruna may be highly incensed at the occasional beating of an errant wife, at arranged marriages, at polygyny, or at the marriages of 13-year-old girls to 45-year-old men. But for the traditional Aguaruna, each of these is perfectly wholesome and appropriate. On the other hand, the Aguaruna are angered when North American anthropologists or missionaries fail to share the food they're eating with visitors. Food is above all things that which must be shared. And when such foreigners are invited for a meal, they fail to exercise careful self-restraint in eating meat, a limited and highly valued food item. Self-restraint in such a setting implies consideration for the needs of others and self-denial on their behalf. Okay, so be really clear here. He's not suggesting that wife-beating and polygyny are disputable matters. That's not the point. What he's doing is showing that both missionaries and locals can be oblivious to behavior that doesn't violate their own conscience. That's the point. There are certain issues that don't violate your conscience, other issues that don't violate their conscience, and there can be major miscommunication among each other when, when you interact in that kind of a setting. So another issue he talks about is uh, conscience standards on modesty across cultures, especially modesty with women. Um, he says, cultures vary in what is thought of as erotic and thus in what modesty entails. For many medieval Europeans, a woman's bare feet were thought highly erotic, while the bosom was associated primarily with nursing. Similarly, contemporary Fulani men say it is the sight of a woman's thighs that stimulates lustful desires. They find it hilarious that Western women go swimming in suits that carefully cover the bosom, a matter of relative indifference to modesty, while flagrantly uncovering their thighs to the world. For many Arab men, on the other hand, the mere sight of a woman's hair tends to stimulate lustful thoughts. Modern, modest Arab women cover their hair in public. Behavior and dress that are appropriately modest in one cultural context may be deemed shockingly immodest in another context. So Christian modesty in the U.S. will look quite different from Christian modesty in Iran. So does this, does this sound crazy to you? Have you heard of this kind of, these differences before? Uh, it, it can even happen in different places in the United States, but it's more pronounced when you go to different places in the world. And that's why it's so hard to, not so hard, so important to understand how conscience works the way it does. And a priest basically says, it, if we train missionaries in the U.S. to go to these foreign fields, and in our own schools we have standards about don't have a skirt that goes so many inches above the knee and that kind of thing, which there's a place for that, being careful. 
But then you take that person who's trained in that context, and then you try to make them, send them out to be missionaries in a place where the women wear grass skirts to the floor and they don't wear anything above the grass skirt, and, you know, go, just, you'll figure it out. Or, uh, you know, go be with the Muslims who cover themselves completely, and you'll, you'll figure it out. Uh, it, it would be helpful if you could think about the conscience before you go into that situation, okay? He gets it. <laughs> He's laughing up here. Okay, so it's, an, it's really important that, that you understand how the culture has influenced your own conscience and, and that you understand the native conscience. So here's what uh, Bob Priest recommends to missionaries. And I'm talking about missionaries because that's kind of an extreme example that still applies to the, our, our examples in our own context. So he says that if you want to reach people in other cultures, you should do two things. One, seek to live an exemplary life in terms of the virtues and norms stressed by the people you're trying to reach. So if you're trying to reach Muslims, don't go walking around in what they think is immodest attire. Uh, second, uh, stress sin, guilt, and repentance principally with reference to their native conscience, that aspect of their conscience that agrees with Scripture. So in every culture, there are people who have conscience issues that agree with the Bible, like murder is wrong. And if, if they believe that, then you can talk about that issue, and when you do, you'll connect with their conscience, and there can be conviction of sin. He goes into a lot more detail than, than I can share here. My point here is that it's, un, it's really important to understand what the conscience is because it helps you evangelize and edify others in different cultures, okay? So next is calibrating your conscience for missions. How do you do this? Uh, again, I think one of the best examples in Scripture of this is, is the Apostle Paul. Uh, he did the hard work of weeding and cultivating his conscience for the sake of winning people to Christ. And just remember that the person I quoted at the beginning of this, this evening, that was Paul. Prior to becoming a Christian, his conscience was just packed with rules from the Old Testament Mosaic Law, and he had to weed many of those out, keep some of them in, add, different, add new rules. He had, that was a massive amount of work. And what was true for Paul on the day of his conversion is what's true for us when we become Christians. We have rules that should be there, that shouldn't be there, and some we need to add. So you've got those two uh, triangles again there on your handout, the overlap of God's standards and Paul's conscience. That's showing how the conscience of every believer is a mixture of rules that are informed by God's will and rules that are cultural, personal, not identified with God's will. And what's hard is that, you know, we don't know where that line is. You see the next, the, the, the diagram that says two sources of conscience standards there? There's a line there where it shows you where, where, it's, where your conscience is informed by God's will and where it's not. Well, we don't, I wish I knew where that line was in my conscience. We just, we don't know for sure. It's kind of blurry. And that's why we need the Lord's wisdom. And this is why this takes your whole life and why there's so many uh, disagreements among believers. Yet the, the difficulty is knowing where God's moral judgments end and mine begin. So I think it's clear from, from Paul's later cultural flexibility that at some point in his life, he said something like this, or this was his spirit. God, it's time for you to weed the garden. It's time for me to bring my conscience under your lordship. 
I'm not the Lord of my conscience, so show me the laws that should be in my conscience but aren't there. Show me the man-made weeds I need to uproot. So he had to just go one by one. So what about eating pork? That prohibition he had in his conscience about eating pork? Well, Jesus said in Mark 7 and other places in Scripture, that's no no longer a matter of right and wrong. So that's preference now. So out that goes. Or what about observing special Jewish holy days? Out they go. I mean, if I want to observe them or not, it's no longer a matter of conscience. It's a matter of wisdom, of love, of spreading the gospel. What about loving enemies? Well, that was probably missing from his conscience. He had to add that one. Uh, what about special kosher hand-washing rituals? Get him out of his conscience. But if he's invited to, say, a synagogue leader's house for a meal, he can, he can go along and do the ceremonial hand-washing so he doesn't offend. So he had this way of, of, fitting, uh, uh, of, of training his conscience, what needs to be there, what doesn't. And then, so once he did that, was it party time? Like, oh, I get to do all this stuff. So was it dinner every night? Was crab stuffed with ham and wrapped in bacon? Uh, was that what he would do everywhere he went? No, no, no. It was never about Paul. It was, it was never about food. It was about Jesus and the gospel. The matters he weeded from his conscience were now the very matters he could flex on for the sake of the gospel for the sake of a weaker Christian. It was in those matters that he became all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. You don't flex on things that you, you, you are convinced in your conscience are sins. <laughs> That's sinning. <laughs> so he could flex on things he knew were not conscience issues. So whether it's eating pork or not eating pork, whatever advances the gospel. If it advances the gospel, let's do it. Uh, if celebrate a Jewish holy day, all right, I'm in Jerusalem, let's do it, fine. I'm not in Jerusalem, don't need to, don't, don't have to. Uh, so he became someone who could glide from culture to culture, just making these seamless transitions without attracting attention to himself. It wasn't about him. It was about something bigger. It was about advancing the gospel. So how do we know he did this? It's because of that paragraph that I quoted at the beginning, where he says, for though I am free from all all people and their cultures, I've made myself a servant to all. And what's the purpose? That I might win more of them. If you want to look at this in your Bible, it's, um, it's 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So then he gives four examples. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Okay? And you think, what do you mean you became a Jew? You are a Jew. When you, he, he lived like Jews, he, like people who followed the, the Mosaic Code still. And the second example, he says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So he could follow the Mosaic Law's prescriptions when trying to win those people so as not to offend them and totally cut off opportunities to share the gospel. But he's not under the law himself. He, he can flex on that. And to those outside the law, so the non-Jews, the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. He, he became a Gentile, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So it's not like he's against law. There's still God's law he follows. God 
is always the supreme Lord and we follow his, his rules, but he's no longer under the Mosaic law. And to those people, he says, I became as one outside the law. And what about those people he wrote about earlier who have weak consciences? That's the fourth group. He says, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. In other words, he didn't flaunt his liberty in front of the weak because he wanted to win them. And then he sums it all up with this principle, I have become all things to all people, and what's the purpose? That by all means I might save some. Why are you doing this, Paul? He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. That is what drove him. He, he was able to do this because he'd done the hard work of cultivating his conscience, of calibrating his conscience to match God's standards, not the standards of people. You can't flex like Paul does if you don't do that hard work first. That, that was his motivation uh, for mentioning, uh, for, for, for developing this kind of cultural flexibility, winning more people for the sake of the gospel. So I think that we need to do the same thing, seriously and prayerfully do the work of streamlining our conscience under the direction of the Holy Spirit and His Word. And this may mean you have to create new categories in your mind for the rules you follow. You might need to have a category for right and wrong and family rules and hygiene and good manners in Minnesota and good manners in California and good manners in South America. You know, you could go on. J.D. Crowley talks about having, oh, he says he has three sets of good manners files. One when, he, when he's in America, one when he's among the Khmer, and one from when he's among tribal minorities. All three cultures care very much about appropriate manners, but the details are different. So he has to remember to adjust with his manners. So next uh, bullet point in your handout, let's talk about Christian liberty. Christian liberty. Some people love this topic, Christian liberty, freedom. It is freedom. And the question is, what are you free to do? And you can see uh, what I say on the handout. It's the freedom to discipline yourself to be flexible for the gospel. So let's talk about this. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, the passage I just quoted, presents two categories of people. There are people like Paul who can flex on issues, and there are people for whom you have to flex. Can you see which one is more advantageous to be as a Christian? If you can't flex on certain issues, you're cutting yourself off to minister to certain people. So it'd be great to be able to cultivate a conscience that allows you to flex from culture to culture. It's not easy. It requires years of careful, carefully tending the garden of your conscience. So these, this, uh, these verses uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, it's all about self-denial and self-discipline for the sake of the gospel. And you can see that chart there, the table. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 says, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And that's corresponding with the definition we're suggesting here. Christian liberty is the freedom to discipline myself to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. Christian liberty is not, oh, cool, I get to do all the stuff my parents wouldn't let me do when I was younger, and then I can post about it on Facebook. That's not Christian liberty. That's immaturity. That's foolishness. That's, that's what immature people do. When immature people get a hold of Christian liberty, 
they make a mess of it like the Corinthians did. This is for people who are mature Christians who can flex for the gospel. This is not for immature Christians who just want to do the stuff they could never do before. That's, that is not at all what Christian liberty is about. Christian liberty is, a, is not about you. It's not about your freedom to do what you want to do. It's about the freedom to discipline yourself to be flexible for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of weaker believers. So here's what this might look like for missionary, missionaries around the world. Christian liberty is the freedom to eat dog when natives in the villages serve it to you. It's the freedom to choose never again to eat southern barbecue or a, a double bacon cheeseburger when you're ministering to Muslims in Detroit. It's the freedom that comes when a single missionary lady who was brought up in a conservative American culture that taught her that she shouldn't wear pants, that when she's ministering to people in another culture where only the loose women wear pants and all the other women wear flowing skirts, that she... Uh, no, I got that wrong. Let me reset a single missionary lady who was brought up in a culture where she was taught that pants are immodest, and she goes to another culture where only the loose women wear pants. No, I got that wrong again. <laughs> uh, did you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Okay, so there's, there are cultures where only loose women wear skirts. There we go, dresses. Uh, okay, it's been a long day. Um, basically, I'm saying sometimes you have to wear something that you're not comfortable with so you don't communicate the wrong thing. And if your conscience doesn't let you do that, you can't even minister the gospel to certain people. Okay, Christian liberty is the freedom that comes from Christ that allows a painfully private person to open up her home in a society where people just walk in without knocking. A society that doesn't even have a word for privacy. I'm describing Kim Crowley, J.D. Crowley's wife in Cambodia. Dear lady, Christian liberty is about a clean freak who forces himself not to get out his hand sanitizer every time he shakes someone's hand. Sometimes I'll give fist bumps so I can avoid that. Uh, <laughs> um, I've heard of a missionary couple through J.D. Crowley told me about it who ruined their ministry because they kept doing that every time they touched other people. They thought he was crazy. Uh, Christian liberty is the freedom to sing and dance to the tribal hymns the way they sing and dance to them, even though by upbringing and personality, you've never been comfortable showing that kind of emotion in worship. I'm describing my friend J.D. Crowley right there. Christian liberty is about someone who hates bugs, having the freedom to discipline himself to live where bugs are nightly invading your your sleeping place during some seasons. Uh, Christian liberty is about a Corinthian Christian who used to have scruples about eating meat, getting invited to his unsaved neighbor's house for a feast, and being served meat that he doesn't want to eat. But he goes ahead and eats it because he remembers Paul's command in 1 Corinthians 10.27. He eats it without asking any questions. He eats it for the sake of the gospel because that man's soul is a lot more important than his preferences. Christian liberty is about another Corinthian Christian who is at the same party and has no scruples about eating meat. He loves meat. And just as he gets ready to dig into his meat, another guy says to him, hey, don't eat that. It's been sacrificed. And for the sake of that other man, he puts down his fork and says, thanks, <laughs> and doesn't eat. Uh, that's, that's what Christian liberty is about. It's about disciplining yourself to put the gospel first and others first. 
uh, my friend JD has a friend who's a missionary over there now, and uh, he became a vegetarian uh, earlier in life, and he wanted to do Bible translation in Asia, and he, he realized that he could not make it throughout Asia being a vegetarian because he would offend so many people who would give them their best meals, uh, killing one of their best animals and serving it to him. And if he were to say, oh, I don't eat that, it would be very offensive. So he forced himself to learn to eat meat again. And he'd, he'd be a vegetarian if he weren't in that culture, but he's done that now and he's eating meat for the sake of the gospel. Um, so J.D. Crowley, a veteran missionary, says this over and over when he's in context where it's missionary training or just to churches. He says, you cannot live this kind of life if your conscience is cluttered with all kinds of stuff that shouldn't be there. So if you've taken 50 little scruples and made them into big taboos in your conscience, those are 50 fewer areas where you can flex like Paul. And if those 50 scruples are in your conscience, your conscience says they're sins, you can't bend. So if what you eat and drink is in that category, it's in that category of right and wrong, you can't flex on that. If personal hygiene is in that category, you can't flex on that. If your conscience tells you it's wrong to eat animals, there goes your ministry to 90% of the world. If, if what you do with your hands when you worship is a conscience issue, don't go to Africa. Or, or if you do, you can just import all your Western hymns and sing them just like you do at home, and don't forget to bring the piano. See, what happens is you end up with what a professor I had named Mark Vowles talks about. He calls it franchise missions. It's these little cookie-cutter duplicates of our home church, but in a foreign country. Same dress, same songs, same buildings, same bound consciences, bound by the same, bound, bound by things that those poor people had no idea were sins until the missionaries came and told them. They, they added to their burden instead of lifting it. So I'm going to quote here my mentor, D.A. Carson. He says that basically we can be too careful and not careful enough, and both of us need 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, both sides. So listen to what he says. The person who lives by endless rules and who forms his or her self-identity by conforming to them simply can't flex at all. By contrast, there's another kind of person. Uh, the person without roots, heritage, self-identity, and non-negotiable values is not really flexing, but is simply being driven hither and yon by the vagaries of every whimsical opinion that passes by. Such people may fit in, but they can't win anyone. They hold to nothing stable or solid enough to win others to it. So the end of verse 22 is critical where Paul says, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. That's the point. And you see the last, second to last bullet point in your handout says the church... God's cross-cultural laboratory for missions. Where do we get missionaries who can flex? Where do they come from? Do, they, do we get them from, from schools? Do, we, do they you know, turn them out from factories? Where, where do you get these people? You know where I'm going. You grow them right here. You grow them in the church. This is God's laboratory for how to reach other cultures. Now, there's clear evidence in the Bible that God intends for the little clashes in your church to get you ready for the really difficult ones you might encounter in evangelism and missions. At least, it's supposed to be a laboratory. 
There's so many Christians in America who have the luxury of dividing up into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller subsets so that there are as few uncomfortable differences as possible. And some churches even put them in their bylaws and enshrine them there. And if we ever change on these third-level issues, the church will self-destruct and the door shall never open again. Uh, and we can do that because we have so many different churches here. There are lots of places in the world where there's one church that you can reasonably reach uh, by transportation. They can't just divide and divide and divide and divide. <laughs> what do you do in that situation? So twice in the Bible, Paul deliberately connects this, this messiness of getting along in church with people who have different consciences with missions and evangelism. And one is we, the one we just looked at in 1 Corinthians 9. But there's one more passage I want to show you, and, and we'll close with that. It's in Romans 15. So turn with me to Romans 15. Romans 15 is the most important missions passage in what is arguably the most important piece of literature in the history of the world. Paul's letter to the Romans. And guess who is the cross-cultural missionary par excellence? The model missionary. Can you guess? It's not Paul. It's Jesus. Let me show you. So in 15, look down at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For, I tell you, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. And if you're looking down at your text, just maybe back up and remember where you are in your Bible. Remember last night we looked at principles from Romans 14 in the beginning of 15? It's the same context. We're going right from these scruples within a church right into missions. What's, what's the connection here? Well, verse 7 tells you to learn to love and welcome and submit and reach out towards those in your church who are different from you. And why is verse 8. Verse 8 tells you why. Because that's what Jesus did when He left heaven to be born as a Jew, to become a servant to the Jewish race and culture so that the world could be saved. Do you just think about what Jesus did. Instead of saying Christ became a servant to Israel or to the Jews, Paul says he became one to the circumcised. Why that word, circumcised? I think it's reminding us that Jesus didn't just become a servant to a race or a language, but to an entire culture with all of its rules and expectations and traditions, circumcision being perhaps the most famous. And it wasn't just any culture. He submitted to a culture that was famous worldwide for being unusually strict. And, and think about this. Uh, he, he left his freedom, of he his freedom in heaven and he became a good little Jewish boy. And then he became a good law-keeping Jewish man. And the whole time he's obeying the Mosaic law that he himself gave at Mount Sinai, knowing that it was temporary. And yet, he kept it. This thing about not eating pork and worshiping only in Jerusalem. He kept these laws, knowing full well that they were temporary. So, Jesus, in his life, practiced what Paul is preaching 
in Romans 15, 14 and 15, and in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Jesus himself did that. He became a servant to people who were very different from him. He submitted to a culture that was very foreign to him. He welcomed a Jewish culture. He, he fit into a Jewish culture. He wasn't a weird outsider. He wasn't a countercultural Jew. He, he went to synagogue with his parents. He went to temple in Jerusalem. He, he went with his parents when he was 12. He celebrated the Passover. He celebrated other feasts. He rested on the Sabbath. He attended synagogue. He, he became a servant to the Jews in their culture. That's so Jesus, Jesus did this, and then Paul did this, and, and now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. Paul says to you right now, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Become a servant to the people in your own culture who are not like you, who make you uncomfortable. People you want to judge in your heart because they're not strict like you. Or people you want to judge in your heart because they are way too strict. So, would you close with me in prayer? And then what I'd like to do is have Q&A as long as Pastor Miller or someone else tells me we can go here. We pray, Father, with grateful hearts that you've given us a conscience. Thank you. For those of us who have experienced your electing love, we thank you for what you've done to our consciences. Thank you for cleansing them. Thank you for perfecting them and purifying them and washing them and purging them and sprinkling them clean. It's priceless. So now, would you give us grace to maintain consciences that are good and blameless? clear, clean, pure. Would you give us grace to calibrate our convictions wisely about specific matters of conscience? Help us be more scripturally informed. Would you please give us grace and wisdom to love other Christians when we disagree about matters of conscience? And as we spread the fame of your name internationally, would you please help us wisely evangelize and edify others in different cultures? And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. How should we proceed here? Okay. What I'd like to do is... Uh, what we can do. He's just asked some questions here. We'll take some time to do that. He's ended before eight. We need to get uh, Andy out of here fairly soon tonight. I can um, stay till eight thirty if I need to. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. But um, we, we're leaning on him again tomorrow morning. So uh, we have a pastors' conference starting, a seminar starting tomorrow, and he'll be leading that in the morning. So we want to give him some rest here tonight. But we can take um, at this point. Uh, maybe I'll jump in at a certain place here, but go ahead with questions. Uh, anything you'd like to ask him, we'll just uh, open that up here now. Okay. Thanks.
So Rich has one. You want to do the other one? It, okay, I can run this one. Now you're going to make make him do this. <laughs> okay, who's who's first? Can I go first? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> um, in our area, we have a Somali community. We have a, a Spanish community. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you practically um, live out your faith in a multicultural community? Yeah. It's very different than when you're in a place where it's 99% Somali or 99% Spanish. Mm. And this, this is our turf. This is our culture. And they're the visitors. Yeah. So we don't need to completely change in that setting. Um, but I understand the, the challenge. We have a, I'm a member of Bethlehem Baptist Church, and we're right in the heart of the downtown area, and there are so many Somalis there. And we, we have this re regular time where we have, what's it called? English is a second language for Somalis or some name for it. So we do that regularly. We interact with so many of them, but seen so little fruit of them actually coming to Christ. Mm. And we're just begging the Lord for wisdom. What do we do? How do we reach them? Uh, for them to come to our culture is just crazy outside the limits of what's acceptable for them. Um, so I don't have the answer other than go live among them and make that your mission. So one of my students right now, he's a fourth-year guy, uh, that's his desire is to be a missionary among them, even here. And uh, he's living among them now in an apartment, surrounded by them. Uh, he's even let one live in his home once uh, when they had an abusive husband who was forcing her to bring her daughter back to undergo female circumcision, which is their, their custom, which is this horrific, horrific, um, and let them live with them for a while. Uh, I wish I had, I had more practical advice for you other than say, ask God for wisdom. Do you, have you thought about this some? I have, yeah. What do you think? Well, I, I have a tension. I have, my tension is um, being far away from this community. So, like, if I was discipling someone, my, I'm working through, would I ask them to come to Eden, 25 uh, miles away? Right, or right. would I tell them to go to a closer church and pass them on? So that's what I'm wrestling through right now in a Jewish community. Right. So, and do you, do you, do Rachel... The sole reason why, Rachel's taking a Hebrew class at Bethlehem, and the sole reason why is because she wants to reach the, the Jewish community, so. Wow. Do you have thoughts on this, Pastor Miller? Um, one thing I, I think uh, more significantly here in our, on our turf with, with people from such different uh, mm -hmm. cultures is, is to demonstrate love. Yeah. I don't think there's any way around it. it we're not going to be able to overcome some of these cultural matters. It's impossible. Yeah. But they're, they're just to continue to love and reach out and, and create bridges, I think, is, the, is what we can do. One thing that, that I've been thinking about also is that process is probably not so much with the first generation as with the second. Yeah. The children that are here, and you struggle to even say that because you don't want to make this a, like we're culturally breaking them down, right. but that is happening, yeah. and the, particularly here in, in this community, the Somali culture is extremely isolated, mm. but their children less so, yeah. and I think as we think long-term and relate to some of the, that second generation, where there is that love, not, we want you to be take on our culture, but there's a 
a connection there of love and grace in Christ that mm -hmm. I, I would hope we can see inroads there mm -hmm. over time. Good, thanks. I just, while we're waiting here, I'll commend you for, in my short time being with this assembly, um, even the way everyone was dressed on Sunday, it was a beautiful diversity. It wasn't a dress code that was enforced. Even the leaders dressed differently. There's something beautiful about that where it's, there's not like the spiritual people do this. Uh, that, that's, that's great. So, commend you. On yeah. that same line, yeah. my question is, as Eden isn't super legalistic, in fact, it's not legalistic at all, in my opinion, have you been in churches that do lean more legalistic and brought this type of a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. sermon to them? Because, I mean, I grew up in that type of yeah. a situation, too. I'm from the South, yeah. and so, of course, you know, girls don't wear pants, yeah. and God help you if you do, and you're just a floozy yeah. if you do. Um, and you get up here and I've been in churches up here where it's mm -hmm. you don't wear jeans to church oh my gosh mm -hmm. how would you dare do that mm -hmm. you know have you been into those churches mm -hmm. and yet those people would say we're the stronger and you're the weaker one for doing that mm -hmm. you know well and those these are tricky yeah so when I was in those cultures I would not intentionally try to dress differently to be in the face of others, that's not going to help anybody. It's immature. Uh, I knew I had freedom, and yet I wouldn't flaunt it. Um, but in other contexts, I was free to dress differently, or my wife is free to dress differently. I'm not in that kind of a context now, so I, I, don't, I know what it's like to be in it, and it's, it can be oppressive and, and stultifying, and it's not healthy. But I should say a couple things here. Um, I, I learned to love Jesus from people like that. I learned my Bible from people like that. There's so many good things about those people. I don't want to paint them like they're these wicked, wicked people. I just, on these particular issues, um, on, on a, a few of these particular issues, it was not best, I think. So I'm not saying they're bad people. I mean, we've got our issues too. Uh, another thought is, in those contexts, I don't know how many of those people were actually flexing for the sake of the weaker among them. So uh, I, I can think of some good friends of mine who are in context like that where they could be where I am or they could be you know, somewhere else and be just fine. But they're serving faithfully where they are and they're culturally contextualizing to serve people in that context. And they're mature people. And one more thought, and that's that uh, a danger, though, of catering to people with weaker consciences all the time is it can create a culture of weaker consciences where if you're always saying, okay, just let's let that go, let's let that go, let's not even talk about that, you know, this one particular family has a big issue with this, so everyone, you know, don't do that. It can, after a while, it can create a context where the, a lot of people don't understand the underlying principles and they just think, oh, yeah, that's what good Christians do. And... So that can be dangerous as well. So what you need is pastors with a lot of wisdom leading here and people in your church with a lot of maturity. Yeah, you want to come back? Yeah. Oh, 
you, you exalt Jesus, and you preach the word, and you love them, and you don't get in their face, and you don't flaunt your liberty, and give it time, and don't make it your mission in life that they change on third level issues. Just love them unconditionally. And maybe, I mean, our goal in life is not that they change their view on third level issues. That's, our goal is that we get along and we, we show the love of Jesus in our, in, with unity. And um, if, now, if they're being sinfully divisive about third level issues, that's another issue. If they're, if they're condemning other people for not holding their views and stirring up division and trying to win people to their side, that's, that's a significant issue where the elders need to, or other mature Christians need to confront them about that. I'm here, I'm talking about your own church, and you're, you have elders in here. What, how have you guys handled this, John or, or Dan? Uh, maybe you could speak to this, because you know this assembly so well. How many of these do we have? Just two? Are there just the two mics? I thought you meant how many people like her. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like wow. Please raise your hands. <laughs> and we'd like you to go outside. And, <laughs> oh, man. Um, I, I have another point to make that maybe is connected, but I think that it would be really wise for every one of us to, to do some self-analysis. This is an area that is a, it's a, a grave danger, that every one of us can have some of these third-level issues that really define our Christianity. And when it comes down to it, it's really what we're fighting for. And really what makes us tick is you fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. But there can, we, we see this quite clearly in, in a church, uh, maybe like Bridget has referenced, maybe you have a category for that, and you can see that it's very easy to see. But it can be true for all of us. What really drives us is not our relationship with Christ, mm -hmm. but what we think about, and you fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. A schooling choice might have deep convictions about what is best and what is right there and we can interact with that and differ on that but there are churches that grow up around that issue and that's what Christianity is and I think we have to fight that and I just use that because it's a very we have a lot of diversity in this church on that and I think that's a sign of health not a sign of weakness that there are people who are very convinced that homeschooling is what's best, that Christian schooling is what's best, that public school is what's best. There's problems with all of it, right? There's, there's strengths and weaknesses, but when we begin to lock into one of those areas that this defines our Christianity, this is what really riles us, this is what we really fight for. Uh, what we're doing is grabbing on to something that's sub-Christian. And it might even be a good position, and I just use that one, you fill in others. There can be other things that you believe very firmly, and you have good reasons to believe that. Does, is that the essence of your Christianity? I, I really believe with all my heart that there are people in conservative Christian churches that really aren't converted. They really don't know Christ as Savior. What they are above all else is politically conservative. And they're holding on to some idea, something that really drives them. Take that away, and they would leave a church. And take it away from Christianity, and they'd leave the faith, I think. Hmm. I want to look at my heart and discern, is there something I'm holding on to that's really, truly more important than Christ? 
and it defines my Christianity. That's an idol, and I have to see it as that, even though it might be a good thing, and I might have good reasons to hold to it. This is, I think, the fruit of what we're dealing with here. But when we see someone in that position, I think you hit it right. It is to know Christ. We have to preach the word. We have to talk about our relationship with Christ. He is at the center of who I am. And some of these things that I hold to dearly, I can let go of when I need to, if I need to, because of who he is. And it's my, uh, the, a living relationship with Jesus that's got to be what we all analyze through this discussion. Sorry, I had to preach a little No, tonight. what am I doing here? You should <laughs> do this. That was great. Please. Amen. Other Dude, you can ask him. Yeah. There's one in the back. Hey, Mel, why don't you just let him hold one of those mics? We can just do one roving mic. You keep, let him stay. But stand. Yeah, okay. you got to okay. stand. <laughs> I, with, with right. No sense of taking over here. Hi. Um, first of all, I just want to say thank you for oh, yeah, my being here. And I know you've touched on some things that are very important to me, and my husband and I are going through some things right now that this perfectly relates to. So hmm. um, my question is kind of... I guess a little bit unusual, but I have a family situation, um, a family member that I love dearly, and um, I'm going through some struggles with this family member is a fairly new Christian, and um, and she's 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 kind and she's good, but she's kind of attached herself to a lot of these things and taken them as you know part of her concept of what Christianity is supposed to look like and. It can be a little bit straining, and um, in, in addition, another family member related to this family member um, is far from the faith, has kind of abandoned God, and so I, my concern is is that in this situation, trying to reach this other family member that's away from God, and then having this family member that's becoming very strict in many areas, I'm, I'm feeling like maybe that might be pushing this other family member away from the faith a little bit and maybe making it more difficult for this family member to to look at it and take it seriously. Um, this particular family member does make a lot of jokes at the expense of Christianity and I I don't know, I don't want to judge either one of them, but I'm just saying for myself, looking the, at the situation, trying to help both of them, trying to love both of them, um, and and um, I, I, I don't know if you would have any advice in that context. Mm -hmm. And there is a cultural difference as well, too. I married into a South American family, so, which is, is great, but it does make mm -hmm. things a little bit challenging sometimes, too. So do you have any advice for that? You want to go first? Go, no, you okay. always go first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spill, he mops. Okay. Um, <laughs> Not at all. Um, you described me a little bit there. So I was really zealous in high school, and I, that was when I was in a very culturally conservative situation. And uh, my parents divorced when I was four, separated when I was four and a half, divorced when I was five, and my mom remarried. And I'm the second of seven children. The first three are from marriage one, next four from marriage two. Um, so uh, growing up in that kind of situation, uh, helped me see some of the brokenness of this world. And I started off Mormon, actually, and then became Southern Baptist and then fundamentalist. It's a long story. But in those fundamentalist years, mostly, most strongly in high school and early college, um, issues that were third level became huge conscience issues to me. And I would go and I'd visit my biological father 
every six months or so while growing up. And he's an agnostic, dear man, I love him, um, but an agnostic. And I would hold to these third level issues and not flex. Like I remember he'd say, you know, just trying to be a good dad. Say, hey, you want to go see a movie? I'd say, no, I'm not supporting Hollywood with any money. I will not say any wicked thing before my eyes. And I will never be in a place that's associated with wickedness. And I was very immature about how I said I would never go to that with him. And it hurt his feelings. It was, it was foolish um, on my part. But I was doing what that culture around me had told me, and I was being faithful to these third-level issues. Things like that, that I'm not, I'm not saying I'm the reason my dad's not a Christian, not at all, but I was immature. I needed to grow up. I needed to grow up. So sometimes for people in these situations, they just need time. They need time to grow, to mature as Christians, time in the Word, time with mature believers, um, that's how it is for all of us, right? So, yeah, clean, clean up here. And I, I maybe maybe I'm reading a little bit into what you're saying, but I I think it's it's in a sense an evangelistic problem because you can't get through that. That's not what Christianity is. But it comes back to we can't fix everybody, we can't win everybody, but keep speaking the gospel. That's that's the key. And if that's what's coming out of your words and out of your life, that that's what matters. Christ died to pay the penalty of sin. He rose again, and I'm alive in him. Leave it at that with that unbeliever. Keep hitting that, and where there's a wrong message coming from that other person, there's nothing you can do to stop that, but you can do the right thing yourself. Just, and I would just keep on that track. I have to be real careful with these things. Can be quite dangerous in my hands. Um, I don't. I didn't see who it was. The the first lady that had the question because, okay, um, I have a perhaps a unique uh, chance here to offer a firsthand perspective. Um, I spent. Hi, I'm David. By the way, I spent. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I spent uh, quite a number of years of my life in the military and. Uh, three of those years, two years in Iraq and a year in Afghanistan, and I had a unique experience back then, which I wasn't, of course, looking at it in the light. I'm looking at it sitting here right now, uh, not having you know, found Christ back then, but uh, having the hindsight that I have now, the culture I experienced over there, they basically had a gigantic generation gap where they had, I guess for like a lack of a better term, like the old school, like all of the, uh, the Sunni and the Shiite, like the Muslims, that still wore like the full body burqas and the mamushkas and the, the husbands, they were very you know, possessive of their wives and they were, they were you know, relatively Old Testament-y, for lack of a better term. <laughs> and then they had the younger generation that was uh, living in uh, like the inner city Baghdad where the new university had been built, were wearing you know, like jeans and sweatshirts and you know, they wore guests and whatnot. And I didn't realize it, again, back then, because I wasn't thinking it along the terms of, of a, a gospel track. But the surprising thing was neither side saw the other as being wrong. They both accepted each other. And what that made me think about while I was sitting here uh, listening to him speak was the fact that when, and this is why I'm, I'm bringing this up as a point to uh, address your question from earlier, is because I don't think it's, you should look at 
delivering the gospel to someone as treating the disease and not a symptom. And you brought up uh, like the difference between like clothing, like skirts, and I know he mentioned it several times. And uh, uh, that's what brought this up in my mind was about the difference between uh, you know uh, central Baghdad and more uh, the rural Muslim areas of Iraq is because you know the main visual difference. Well, I mean you know the younger kids were still you know they were still Muslims. They were still they still classified themselves as Sunnis or Shias and whatnot. And so I came to, was thinking about the clothing thing and thinking about the difference between like skirts and you know, he was bringing up like ankles and cleavage and whatnot. And so I think it's important to preach the, uh, the, the I don't know how I wanna put this, like the theology instead of like the actual circumstance. Like in that instance, you should be preaching against like lust, right? Like it's not inherently wrong for, you know, I don't think, and you know, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think God ever said thou shalt not wear denim, but you know, he preaches against, you know, lust and possessiveness and greed and pride. So if you're in a culture where, uh, or you know, like old England, we always hear about how old England, how they thought like the ankles or like the back of a woman's elbow was, you know, what was considered, you know, taboo and sexy back then. You should be addressing the gospel being like in in terms of, you know, not like the ankle or the cleavage or, you know, the rear specifically, but in terms of like the actual sin of like lust. So, if, you know, looking at someone's ankles is what causes you to feel the sin of lust, then that's what you should, you know, be repentant for. Or, you know, looking at a female's backside is what, you know, in our culture makes you experience lust, then that's what you should be repentant for. And so be generic and yes. speak and the gospel. And, yeah. and I saw that, again, when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan because the, the, the younger 25 and below generation was so visually different than their older counterparts, mm -hmm. and yet they still, you know, the students would go home from their college breaks and sit down with their mother and father who was still very traditionally dressed. And, and I had an opportunity to eat with these families several times because part of uh, my reason for being there was to embed ourselves with them and teach them, you know, at least the military aspect of our culture. And they were, I mean, there was no, like, mom and dad to be like, oh, I can't believe you're wearing that, or like, is that how you dress at school? And because they all understood, like, the underlying, like, theology of it all, and the, the clothes themselves were not the issue there. Hmm. Sorry for rambling. <laughs> That's all right. Another question. So I go guess ahead, I'll Tyler. ask a question. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Does Christian liberty go the other way? You may, you talked about, you know, like if you're a missionary and you go to a culture where women wear head coverings, mm -hmm. and maybe the missionary's wife wears a head covering, be all things to all people, but you go to the culture that women wear grass skirts, should your wife wear nothing but grass skirts? Like, does it go that way? Does this, does Christian liberty allow you to be to lower your standards? Um, as low as, well, you never sin against your conscience. So um, remember the example I gave of a woman who, whose conscience said she shouldn't wear pants? Remember that one? Yeah. And she went to a context where only the loose women dress with skirts so, and the, the good ones wear pants. So she had to train her conscience wearing pants is not inherently sinful, so I can do it. But if it's in a culture where 
it's more egregious than something like that. Uh, I don't think you can retrain your conscience on something like that, and nor should you need to. It's their culture uh, could be uh, what's transgressed, and they're not expecting you to be like them in every way anyway. It's a good point. Cultures can yeah. do wrong yeah. things. Yeah. They do. And we have to know the distinction where that culture is wrong. Um, I think of, um, I know this goes way back, but I think of Elizabeth Elliot in the pictures you have of that, that right. scene. Right. She's always clothed. Um, I think you have to know the people in the situation, but generally, so you got the grass skirt with nothing above in that culture. Uh, there's a, you can train. You, you can say, we do it differently. And it, it does get challenging. I, I have a, a cousin that's been in a, a spot where if a man, if the husband helps his wife, he is showing himself to be weak and uncharactered. He should, you, and, and if, your hus, if the husband's helping his wife in the house to do things in the house, she is showing a lack of character that she would ever need her husband to do anything in the house. How do they respond in that setting? I think they've done the right thing to try not to flaunt it, but on the other hand, with right people in certain situations, to show a different way. Mm -hmm. It's not wrong to show a different way. We don't become all things, all people in every single way possible. There are times when we would do something differently, what but again, for the gospel. What, what culture was that? Uh, Kazakh, one of the Stans, I can't remember. Kazakhstan, it might be. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't recall. In fact, they were with a people where they never told us where it was, and, I, and then okay. when they came back, I learned, but I forgot because it was always some encrypted thing. But um, and, and another setting from his deal, uh, fishing with three guys, and they said, let's go to the village and find a girl, which, you know, what that meant. Very normal, common, just what you do. Does he become what they are in that setting to win them? Yeah, so in those four examples, he doesn't say to the adulterers, I became as an adulterer, right. that I might right. win adulterers. Uh, that doesn't apply. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. So there are, there, are, there are a lot of times when you have to be different than the culture that you're in to be a yeah. faithful representative of Christ. Mm -hmm. And you haven't said much about that. That's assumed. Mm -hmm. We're probably looking at the other side of it. That makes sense. So I think you you don't always become what everyone else is. There are certain situations where that would be unfaithful. It's a good question, Tyler. And yet, sometimes we have to bear the brunt of be call, being called a friend of sinners, like our Lord right. was. Right. Right. We have to lower our our pride our our pride to a very low level to where. Our humility, we don't defend our own reputation when people right. call us names because we are willing to reach out to needy people. Right. Right. Mel's looking at me right now because I just addressed this in class. <laughs> A lot of people use that line, friend of sinners, to justify um, hanging out with people in unsavory locations. And... Uh, I don't think that's a good use of the text. Jesus wasn't sinning be, uh, when he was with other people. He was a friend of sinners in that he was reaching out to them, dining with them, mingling with them in a way that was scandalous to the scrupulous 
Jews in his day. It wasn't anything that was shady or sinful. It wasn't he was partying with these people at all. And that's how people often refer to it. And that's, I know you didn't mean to say that, but I thought I should say something to clarify. Right. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good. There's an example that I, that I thought of. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Brother Andrew. Um, the Bible smuggler? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he had one example of, um, I think, a positive thing where he went into another culture and they wanted him to drink with them. Well, he wasn't going to get drunk, but he realized he had to swallow his pride and for the first time tasted alcohol in a way to, to reach these people that didn't understand that he had never drunk, drunk uh, you know, alcohol before. But he was... He was allowing himself to kind of step into their, their life a little bit so that he could, he could hopefully, you know, sow seeds for the gospel. I think Rich has one. Oh, this is maybe a little difficult, but I have absolutely loved every session you gave. And tonight, I was particularly anxious to hear about cultural, you know, differences and how to handle it. But um, thank you. It, it was marvelous every time I went home with lots of questions. However, now I'd just like to share something quickly, if I can, mm -hmm. that fits in with what you were saying. I um, had my son moved to Taiwan when he was 21 to teach English. And he stayed there. He married a Taiwanese gal. He had two children. And he suffered a terrible brain injury in 2006. And he lived for six years, unable to walk, talk, sit up, turn over. But his right brain was not injured, so he could understand everything. So I spent half of six years in Taiwan. And because I'm white, and they assume I'm American, I can't tell you how many times at the hospital, in a restaurant, in a bus, someone would slide next to me and say, are you Christian? And I'd say yes, and they'd say, well, I'm Christian too. And they'd want to talk about it, and they'd take me to church. And they're so zealous in Taiwan, because when I first went there in 92, there were only about 1% to 2% Christian. And now they figure it's about 10% Christian. And they're very you know, fervent, like new Christians are, excited about everything. And it's wonderful. But um, what I wanted to really say is when I first immersed myself in Taiwanese culture, I was a very aware that I was a white American and they were all Chinese. I mean, you know, I felt probably like years ago a black person felt in America in a room full of whites. By the time I got done with the half of those six years, I didn't even know I'm not Chinese. When I'm there, I have so many friends, the doctors, the nurses, friends I've met everywhere, that I think I'm Chinese and never enters my mind. I think what I really like to say is, um, one thing that made me want to be good when I didn't want to be good <laughs> was that everyone did think I was Christian, you know, assume, and so I wanted to try to you know, keep control when I didn't have any and be nice when I wanted to not be nice. Because uh, I have found 
in my walk in 74 years, my Christianity has ebbed and flowed and, you know, so I, I know that can happen. And what I got the most out of always was someone walking the walk, not someone talking to me. But when I could watch someone and see what they said is how they lived. And so I tried to just do a little bit of that in Taiwan. And I, I'm so, you know, it's so sad. Mark died uh, two years ago. But I'm so thankful that I had that opportunity to know that really we have a lot. Whether you look at someone, they're a different color, a different religion, we have a lot more in common than we do have differences when it comes to the soul, you know, and love, being able to love. People still care about their families. The ways might be a little different, but there's just a lot of love there. So that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. And it's, uh, Andy, let me say it's been a joy to have you here. Thank you. I, there, part of the plan here and part of the just the natural result of such a topic is for there to be continuing discussion and we want to do that and in fact I think uh, we have tentative plans on November the 9th on that Sunday evening to pick this conversation up and maybe to um, uh, direct it uh, and and you can certainly questions you'd like to have chased at that time and uh, I hope we continue to, to talk through things. There are certainly some things that uh, are said that maybe have proven challenging to you, maybe some things with which you disagree. Maybe it brings up disagreements you have with others and, and how we relate to them. These are the kinds of conversations that are healthy and necessary and encouraging, and I, and I think uh, ultimately we want to bring ourselves in line with what Scripture teaches, and we've been well served that way to consider the text of Scripture, to consider uh, what God is saying in these matters. And while it, this is part of living together as a body of Christ, it's not that everything's easy to answer and figure out and, and meet simple categories and boxes. There's a, there's, a, there's a messiness to the body of Christ, and we have to be at peace with that messiness. It doesn't all work out perfectly between cultures and within the culture of even a church as uh, uh, tight as we are in a lot of ways. So these are important, important issues. Keep talking about them, keep praying through them, working through them, and being willing to change and to challenge each other. That's important. But thank you, Andy, for coming, for serving us this way. We're grateful for the time you've invested. Looking forward to tomorrow morning, and then we'll free you from, uh, from all of this uh, call and endeavor, but it's a huge amount of effort on, on his part. You know that. Uh, let's express our appreciation as we have opportunity, but we won't be able to do that tonight because we need to dismiss him just because of his work and his responsibilities. So we're going we're gonna to make a way out of here uh, for him to transition fairly quickly out. So just understand that. I'm sure we're all ready to head out anyway. It's a dark Monday night, isn't it? But great to see you here tonight. Thank you for putting forth the effort to, to be with us. Let's pray for him and, and for our church and the glory of God. We pray, Father, to that end, and we, we know that what a transformational prayer it is to ask that your name would be glorified, that it would be glorified in this earth, that it would be glorified in this church, 
And as the gospel is proclaimed and as, as your people are raised up throughout the world, we many times shake our heads to wonder why they don't see things the way that we do. Why there are churches in other parts of the world that think what they do about the Christian life. We're confused even as we look at our own lives and seek and strive to know what is best and what is drawing us closer to you. But in the messiness of life here in a fallen world, we cling to you, we give you thanks and pray that through us that you will magnify your name, that people would look to our lives and that they would see the love and the faithfulness of your people as an evidence that there is an answer, that there is life in Christ. And we pray that we might be faithful to demonstrate that life. I pray for Andy and the work that you've given him to do. I pray that you'll continue to sustain him and his family. We pray for Jenny and the girls and thank you for the sacrifice that they've made to have him gone uh, these many hours with us. I pray that your blessing would be poured out upon them, that you will strengthen them. And I ask that you would strengthen his hand for the work that you've given him to do as he continues to contribute, to write, to research, to teach, and to discern the meaning of the revelation that you've left us in written form. I pray that you would pour out your blessing upon him and strengthen him for the glory of your name. I pray that we together might partner as a body of Christ, as a church here, to uphold the glory of who you are. And I pray that we'd proclaim it widely and faithfully. Teach us in uh, cross-cultural relationships to learn how to best reach unbelievers for Christ. We need that. We long for it. And help us to know how to love one another through endurance, through patience, through persistent grace, through building each other up in the faith, and for pursuing holiness together as a community of Christ. We long that you would bring this about and that these hours of investment would bear fruit to that end. In the name of our Savior, we ask these things and pray for the glory of Christ to be seen in us. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.